Many of you have heard about the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which was written by Robert Piersig. Now a documentary is being made about this man, his journey, and the mental illness he battled. This Saturday, I will talk with Dennis Davis, Manola Carter, and Dr. Stephen Hinshaw about this Robert Persick project and about destigmatizing mental illness. It's Gazoodtight with Jacobus. Live Saturday mornings at 8 on AM 1450 KMMS, where Montana talks. Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all-natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. Good morning, everybody. What an exciting program today. There is uh, quite a bit to discuss, and we very much appreciate you tuning in today. Uh, the topic is going to be Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, a book written by Robert Persich, who passed away last year, 2017. At the age of 88, the um, uh, we have several guests in the studio, and we also do have uh, people on the phone. At one, at in a half hour, we get our first guest on the phone, and at, he'll be on for an hour and a half. And then at 10 o'clock, we have another guest. So Dr. Stephen Hinshaw will join us from 8:30 till 10. And then a gentleman by the name of Lee Glover will be part of the show from 10 to 11. And uh, we'll we'll explain much more as the show progresses. So good morning. Good morning. I really appreciate it. Uh, This is a program about health, healing, and healthy lifestyles. We invite the experts to talk about a project they're working on, their profession in general, and uh, just things, maybe a book they've written that will come up today, obviously. I want to keep in mind that as we talk about health issues today, it will be a lot about mental health and emotional health. This has never been a program where we're here to diagnose, treat, or cure. It's always about the education part, information, and entertainment. We always recommend that after the show, you contact the guests, set up an appointment, and or that you go see a physician of your choice. Lots of good information is available for self-help today. And there are things you can start within the next 10 minutes if you want to work on improving the quality of your life. So start today. If there is something that inspires you, that you can improve the quality of your life. So anyway, having said all that, welcome to the program. Just want to introduce you to the guest who will be on the show the entire three hours, Dennis Davis and Manola Carter. Dennis Davis is an award-winning journalist and a filmmaker with a BA degree in filmic writing from CSUN and a master's degree from the prestigious USC Film School. He has worked in the industry for more than 30 years, and he has created many dozens of productions. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Jacobus. Nice to have you on the show. Well, thank you for that introduction. (laughs) Now, they say Cal State Northridge, CSU. Oh, Cal State Northridge. Yeah, you're right. Sorry about that. Should have done that. Now, uh, Manola Carter is my other guest. After decades of managing complex projects, Manola Carter established Threefold Flame (laughs) Productions to outpicture positive, inspiring, motivating, and uplifting works and cinema that make a difference in this world. 
I, I want to let you know that uh, to get a hold, well, first of all, good morning, Manola. Well, good morning, Jacobus. Good morning, everybody. I'm so happy to be here yeah. and sharing all this goodness with you guys. Lots of information today. Lots of information. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Now, there is a way to get a hold of these people. Um, there is a website that they started. It's called persicsjourney.com. Persic is spelled P-I-R-S-I-G-S journey.com. Persicsjourney.com. If any of you would like to make a, to call them and get in touch, and I'll tell you also why, uh, in a little bit, it's 520-833-4239. Um, my God, uh, this book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, it's actually good that we have a chance to chat with the three of us before the other people come on. Right. Because maybe you two can explain what is actually, what are we going to talk about today? Well, I think. How is the show developing? Well, I, let me, let me start just by saying what inspired me to want to do a project, a documentary on Robert Persick, his life and his wonderful book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I was working at the water center at MSU. Uh -huh. And I went to have lunch across the road there, which puts me in a soccer field, which I know you're right. familiar with. We've, familiar. We've, yeah. we've actually played soccer there together. That's right. Anyway, so I, so I saw this little old guy that looked lost. He had a little map that he'd gotten from the police station, which is right next door to the, where the water center used to be. Right. And he is looking at this and looking puzzled. And I asked him what he was looking for. He was looking for Montana Hall because it turns out that Robert Persig was teaching rhetoric and English in Montana Hall, what's now Montana Hall, it's an administration building, but back then it was used uh, as uh, teaching rooms, mm -hmm. and he also had an office up there on the third floor. Mm -hmm. And uh, he asked me if I'd ever read this book, and he said that he was on what is called a Persic pilgrimage. Uh -huh. A Persic pilgrimage is when you follow the route that is described in the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And it's pretty well described in that book. People have since made very detailed maps about places to visit and go if you wanted to follow Robert's route. Uh -huh. And he had done that. And I thought to myself, my goodness, if a book can inspire that level of commitment to spend your money and your time to follow a course that's described in a book, yes. there's something in this book. And, and uh, when he asked me, did I read it? I said, yes, I did read it. And I, I actually liked it. I read it when I was a senior in high school. Yeah, And um, it just seemed to me that there was enough substance there to really do an interesting story about Robert Persig and the contents in his book, which are just as much philosophical as they are personal. I see. You know? uh -huh. So we started to do this documentary about six months ago. We began to lay the foundations for it, and we call it Persig's Journey. And the reason that we call it Persig's Journey is because it's a journey that's described in the book that's physical across the middle of America in the summer, which is absolutely gorgeous visually. So yeah. as a filmmaker, I got excited about the whole idea sure. of giving people the sense that they're driving through this beautiful landscape, America the beautiful, mm -hmm. on a motorcycle, yeah. by using drones, by using GoPros, okay. and just give people the sense that they're not looking at it as Persig had described behind a framed window, a glass right. window, that right. they're actually out there. And so I want to give people the experience that he describes in the book as if they're riding alongside of him. I see. Yeah, and get that visual impact of, uh -huh. uh, of experiencing that journey. But it's also, and more importantly, an inner journey. 
Robert Persick had underwent shock therapy sessions that had eradicated his memory, and he needed to rebuild himself and wanted to reconnect with the person that he had been prior to his memory loss. And so this journey was a way that he used to try to reconnect memories. He thought if he came back to what is now Montana State University, it was Montana State College at the time, that it might trigger memories. He might be able to kind of put together the pieces of the puzzle that he had been putting together since he had undergone that shock therapy. He went through 27 sessions of shock therapy, involuntarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when he woke up one day, he looked around, he saw the doctors staring at him and the nurses, and he didn't know where he was, why he was there. And more importantly, he did not know who he was. Try to imagine this, like super amnesia, but done involuntarily with shock therapy. Well, and he was very intelligent. So for somebody that has that intelligence, but that all of a sudden you are in these days where you don't know where you are, that is, uh, that's a that's a strong conflict, I would say. Not only so, not where you are, but who you are. Who right. am I? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, you they tell you your name, but what does that tell you about who you are as an inner being? Mm-hmm. You know, mm. where is your consciousness then? Yes. So he became very interested to figure out who he had been prior to losing his memory. Right. And when he was finally released from the hospital, the first thing he had to do, though, before he could get out, was to adopt a personality, and that, that would have probably been based on those psychiatrists that he was working with, right? right? If you reflect back to them, their behaviors and how they speak and what they think, they're going to think you're normal, right? Right. So I think that's probably what happened. And so he created a new personality, uh-huh. uh, but it was not really generic to his inner being. Yes. It, it was just done to socialize and to be able to get out of that place. And when he did get out of that place, he went back home and he discovered boxes of material that he had notes, that he had taken notes, that he had written a lot oh, wow. in, his, in his previous, you know, when he still had his memory yeah, intact be- before his breakdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he started combing through this and he was absolutely amazed at what he found, the depth of perception and insight oh. that this former self had come up with. Yes. And you learn about this as you read through the book, Zen and the Auto Motorcycle Maintenance. Yeah, and I'm going to butt in here a little bit. And um, Robert said that he was so inundated with all these ideas in his brain, he just felt he needed to, he needed to bring this idea forward. He felt messianic about it. And he just couldn't... Um, the idea of what the ideas, he read about... Well, it was... Or that he was a different person all of a sudden. This story all started at Montana State College when a friend of his, her name is Sarah Vinky, she just nonchalantly walked into his office and was watering. She had a watering can, was starting to water the plants. And she goes, oh, Robert, I hope you're teaching quality to your students. And Robert goes, "Uh, (laughs) of course I am. What do you think? (laughs) What do you, you know, of course I am. And then she goes, oh, well, then, Robert, you're the only one that is. And he was like, oh, boy, what did I get myself into? So Sarah left, and he kind of stayed in his office, and he was thinking, 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 and go, what the heck is quality? And he just kept thinking, and he was a thinking kind of guy. In fact, he was very smart at the age of nine. He was 
he had a IQ of 170. Wow. His dad was the dean of the law department at Minneapolis yeah. University. Yeah. And he went to private school and he was just incredibly smart. He was just a broad, a prodigy. And, um, he was a thinking kind of person. So after Sarah left and his, he didn't have class anymore. So he stayed in the office just contemplating about what the heck is quality. And, you know, this was around early afternoon. And then come dinner time, the wife, uh, Nancy calls, Hey, honey, you coming home for supper? He goes, No, no, I, I'm working. I, I have to resolve a problem. Oh. And he just stayed there in his office. He hadn't moved, staring at the wall, thinking, thinking, what the heck is quality? So it's like 3 a.m. in the morning. He finally leaves and he still doesn't have an answer. So then the next time he has a class with his students, he goes, well, I don't know what the heck quality is. I'm going to assign this to my students as a writing project because he taught um, rhetoric and composition English class. Yes. And uh, so he gave the assignment to the students and then the students said quality what uh, whatever and then so they went home they did their assignments and they came back and then they were like okay here's our papers and then they asked him okay so what's quality and he said i don't know what quality is that's why i gave you guys the assignment so you can help me <laughs> oh my god like that there was huge uproar in the class they were all like what do you mean you're doing blah blah blah, blah. and then even the dean of the college had to come and say hey what's going on Oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. So that's how this quality thing started. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I want to, I want to let our listeners know, uh, a couple things here. First of all, Gazuntai with Jacobus, uh, Dennis Davis and Manola Carter in the studio today. We are going to invite another guest to call, to come, to come on board at 830 is Dr. Stephen Hinshaw. He'll be on the phone with us from UC Berkeley and then he'll be on from 830 till 10. And then from 10 to 11, we will be joined by Lee Glover, who has actually done this journey on the same exact motorcycle twice. And it has been a very interesting experience for him and uh, life-changing. And he will tell his story about this. Now, why is all this important? Part of it is when this book was written, and maybe one of you can explain this, it was rejected, and then maybe tell the story how, how often it was rejected. still a Guinness World Record, right? Yeah, they claim that, although I couldn't find it on their website, but yeah. it, but maybe it used to be. But okay. he submitted this book to 120... So he wrote it when? In 1974 or 73? It was... It it was, it was no, in 74 it, it was published. Published, okay. published in 74. Yeah. But he had started submitting it, you know. He did his journey in 1968 that is described in the book. Yes. So somewhere between 68 and 74, he says he took four and a half years for him to write it. And after he had written the first version of it, he looked at it and he found that there were too many me's and too many I's. And then he decided, no, I'm going to refer to my former self that I had been before my memory loss as Phaedrus. Phaedrus. And so throughout the book, you have this struggle between Phaedrus mm-hmm. trying to reemerge and uh, the author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which some people take to be Persig, but that's really the personality that he had to, cre- he had to create uh, to get out of the hospital and to socialize and all of that. Even he himself says that that was just a fake. That personality that he created just didn't feel right or real to him. Yes. But he was also very, very reluctant to allow Phaedrus back in because that had gotten him into so much trouble. I see. As he put it, no more shock therapy for me. 
Yes. You know. So, but it has been translated. Tell us, how, well, originally, I mean, how many books are being sold, have been sold? I understand there are still about 100,000 copies sold every year. I don't know what the exact number That's is. That's what I heard yesterday in one of the podcasts. And it might be true. Uh-huh. Uh, I know it's 30,000 or up. Yes. I do know that it's a big number. And yeah. also it's international. It's been translated in what? In how 22 many? languages. 22 languages. Right. Wow. It's used around the world. Uh, a lot of times it's in a uh, um, high school or a college setting. Yeah, I think there is a course taught at MSU in the summertime. Is that correct? There was one. Sometimes. N- there was one this summer that, yes. that was uh, based on the book and really emphasized the environmentalism that's in the book. And so far as Persig was a lover of the outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Peter Olson from Wisconsin is the one that came and taught that course. But there's been an ongoing course as well during the regular semester okay. by a fellow by the name of uh, Charlie Pinkava. And up until this semester, w- which now it's going to change a little bit, but prior to this, the only book that they used in that class was Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. So they wow. would really delve deeply into it. Huh. Because it's yes, 50 teach- years. It's 50 years that he did the journey, right? Right, right. Uh-huh. It's This year is the 50th anniversary. <clears throat> yeah, and then the, they teach, they, um, Use this book in a lot of freshman college courses to teach the kids critical thinking. Okay. Which is a, I find a very valuable tool mm-hmm. for us to have when we're dealing with life in all, overall, you know, just, you know, let's think about something before we make a big decision that's going to impact our lives forever. Yes. And so I find that very valuable. And one of the reasons is because when you read through the book, you see how Persig's mind works and he'll, He'll propose a certain situation and then he'll analyze it and he'll tear it down and he'll think about it and he'll describe the conclusions and how he arrived at them. So it is a book that you could use to teach critical thinking to students for sure. But the interesting thing about that also is that his philosophy was actually an attempt to get beyond logic and reason. Okay. To transcend that and to try to create a state of consciousness that is more Zen-like, like beginner's mind, where you have direct perception of reality beyond reason and logic. Even though he himself was brilliant with reason and logic, he felt that it was an inhibition to experiencing reality because the mind tends to want to put everything into a category. I so see. you see it, you say, oh, that's a tree, it's green, it's whatever. Uh, but direct perception is before you impose what you think you know about the world. Mm. We're always interpreting or reinterpreting what we see, what we experience, what we hear. Yes. And he says there is a way to get into a state of mind beyond reason and beyond logic where you have more direct perception. And he calls the state of mind a kind of a mystical quality, dynamic quality. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. And, and so he, he spends a lot of his philosophy exploring what quality means, as she said, when Sarah Vinke asked him, what is quality? That became a seed crystal around which his whole philosophy began to develop and evolve. It turned into his first book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which in its first publication sold 50 million copies. No, five, 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 five million yeah, copies. It, yeah, within years, it got to five million copies sold, and now it wow. still sells. It, tens of thousands. We're not maybe a hundred. We've heard thirty. Heard, we've heard fifties. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, we, a you, lot. A lot, a lot, exactly. And they have sold now about 20 million copies or something? A lot of copies lot have of been copies. sold, and in various editions of it. Yes, you yes, know. yes. Yeah, many, yeah, many. Yeah. If you go on to Amazon and look, you'll see like five different versions of it just on Amazon yes. and eBay even more. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. bought my copy at the Country Bookshelf. Mm-hmm. So they have they have several copies in case people are interested in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's um, I want to say a couple of things before we go on because um, Dr. Stephen Hinshaw is going to join us, and I want to let people know that he is uh, he is professor of psychology at the University of California Berkeley, UC Berkeley, where he was department chair from 2004 to 2011. He is also vice chair for child and adolescent psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Henshaw is a renowned expert in the field of psychology and mental health, with particular, excuse me, particular expertise in clinical and de- developmental psychology, neuroscience, and in combating the stigma that still surrounds mental illness. Yes, you want to say something? Yeah, I, I do want to say something. Because how? we're going in a break. Yeah. Oh. Go ahead. Yeah, I want to say something about Steve Henshaw and how he yeah. came into the picture. And uh, that is because Dennis had been watching CBS Sunday morning show and Glenn Close was on and she was talking about her sister, um, battle, Jesse, yeah. her sister, Jesse battling bipolar disorder. And she didn't even know what was going on with her sister because she was kind of like a, a free thinker. We got to go. Got to go. We have now on the phone with us to join us for the next hour and a half. Dr. Stephen Henshaw, he is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, where he was department chair from 2004 till 2011. He is also vice chair for child and adolescent psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Henshaw is a renowned expert in the fields of psychology and mental health with particular expertise in clinical and developmental psychology, neuroscience, and in combating the stigma that still surrounds mental illness. He has authored 12 books and and over 340 articles, including his most recent memoir called Another Kind of Madness, which is a journey through the stigma and hope of mental illness. Overall, he has been one of the 10 most productive scholars in the field of clinical psychology over the past decade. His website is stephenhinshaw.com. Stephen was with spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Hinshaw, H-I-N-S-H-A-W, stephenhinshaw.com. Uh, Professor Hinshaw, good morning, and thanks so much for joining the show today. I appreciate the invitation, and I'm glad to be here. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. Well, I tell you what, right before the break, Manola was explaining a story and uh, we have to cut it short, so we're going to let her finish because it is about how you got involved in this project. Go ahead, Manolo. Right. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm good. Good. Good to hear from you again. Yeah, so happy that you're here with us. So, yes, the well, way... Yeah, finish up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up where you left off. Yeah, oh. awesome. Okay, okay. So, this is pretty neat, the way we met Stephen. Dennis and I started our scouting trip for the documentary because Robert Persick, his the motorcycle trip he took is 2,700 miles long, yeah. and we started our trip in St. Paul. And there's the, the mental health aspect of the story is really important for us, and I think it's a good way to share about what's going on with this 
in the documentary. So we said, okay, we need to find an expert who is very familiar with mental health. And so we were on a, on a quest, let's say. Dennis, fortunately, had listened to the uh, Sunday morning with CBS, and Glenn Close was actually on speaking about the experience she had with her sister, Jessie. There's the actress, uh, Glenn Close. Yes. Yeah, the actress. Hi, Glenn, if you're listening. <laughs> so we came to know about her organization called Bring Change to Mind. Right. And we looked on the website and we said, oh, we need, we want to, and I think it's useful for all of us if we can align ourselves with an organization um, for their documentary that will benefit them. And we said, well, we're on the scouting trip. Their office is, is in San Francisco. Let's just go drop by and say, hey, this is who we are. This is what we're doing. And uh, we would like to present to you our project and see what you think. And let's just do it cold turkey. And that's that. Yeah. Fine. So we're in San Francisco. We put it on the GPS and then the bell for the gas light goes bing, bing. It's like, Oh my God. <laughs> we're downtown San Francisco. We need gas. And in San Francisco, it's a lot of one way streets yeah. and we're, well, let's get gas right now. Even though we had put in the address for the office, bring change to mind. So here we thought we were going to the gas station and we were running around in circles. And then, uh, googly, which is the nickname I gave the Google, um, Googly. Googly. Yeah. And she yeah. goes, well, you have arrived. I go, well, that doesn't look like a gas station. Oh, my gosh, that's being changed to mine. I guess we're supposed to go there now. So yeah. we parked the car, walked 10 minutes to the place, walked upstairs, and we said, well, let's just see what happens. And then we knock on the door, and they're actually having a powwow in the hallway because Pamela Harrington, who's the executive director, she was going on a retreat. And Stephen actually had gone there just to say, hey, Pamela, have a good time. And so he rarely goes to the office. And here we walk in. They're having a power in the hallway. Stephen is there. And we say who we are, you know. And they go, wow, we never really have walk-ins. And they were kind of excited. So we met with Pamela. Steve came. And he goes, oh, yeah, I love the book. It's like one of my 10 favorite books. And then we said, oh, wow. And then we found out about him. It's like, oh, my goodness. But angels helped us because we were looking for, like, that perfect person. He's, like, the perfect person. And he's so awesome. So well, that's how we met Stephen. Right. Yeah. And then he invited us. He didn't have time that day to really get into a good conversation. But he said, if you'll stay over, I can meet with you tomorrow. It, and so we went to Berkeley. Yes. UC Berkeley. Yeah. Where we had a nice meeting with him and got to know him better. And he was very gracious with his time and he gave us a copy of his book. And, uh, awesome. So it's yeah. wonderful to have him on the project. And what he, what I think he'll talk about this more. Uh, there's some overlap between Robert Persig's experience and what he, Dr. Hinshaw's father went through. Yes. Yeah. So I kind of want to. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I want I want to pass it on to uh, Dr. Henshaw and have him kind of come in at this time. Yes. Do you remember that story? Well, do I remember it? It's as though it occurred a couple of hours ago. <laughs> it was the middle of the summer. Uh, San Francisco was enshrouded in not the deepest fog of all time, but uh, it wasn't very warm. Um, and I had dropped by Bring Change to Mind's office to uh, help plan for some of their fall events. Um, it's a long story, but when Glenn uh, founded this organization, actually co-founded with her sister Jesse, yeah, the idea was we need to change the public face of mental illness. And so each year the organization puts out a variety of public service announcements. Some involved. 
involving men, some athletes, uh, young people are featured, older people are featured. But how I got involved was that I had been working among the many projects I do with a small group in Los Angeles that had the idea that if we're really going to change attitudes toward mental health and mental illness, we need to start young. And in fact, one way to do this would be to have clubs in high schools, not mental health groups. There are school psychologists and counselors in high schools. But in a way that at most high schools, the beginning of the school year, there's club night or club week. And each club has its tables for the rugby club or the chess club or the Latin club, if there still are Latin clubs. And there still are some schools. What about a club called the Let's, L-E-T-S, Let's Erase the Stigma Club? Uh. And this was the brainchild of Phil Fontalea, a man that I got to know. Uh, almost a decade ago, who had a lot of varied experiences in his life, and he said, I really, he almost cold-called me one day in 2010 uh, and, and flew up to Berkeley and said, I think if we can start clubs in high schools for anybody, any high schooler to join, whether or not he or she has any mental health issues, maybe uh, the dad or mom or a sister or a good friend, or maybe they're just interested in social action around an issue that faces every family in the land, which is someone's got a mental health issue, they're not thriving the way they should, but it's really hard to talk about because it's still such a shameful topic. Yes. So the idea for the clubs, to make a long story short, is with a guidebook that we, the advisors, help put together, not a structured curriculum, not the ABCs of mental health, but how to get speakers and how to raise a little money for your club and how to engage the school administration and how to de-stress. And the idea is that kids' natural empathy and natural activism, when they're in a weekly club meeting, and there's no mental health professional again, there's an advisor of the club, one of the school's teachers, the way any club would have an advisor. But this process, of fomenting, if you will, empathy and compassion and taking on the way that teenagers do with their natural social activism, Right. how to undertake this ambitious goal of changing people's attitudes and bringing the whole issue out of the closet. Well, a couple of years after the Los Angeles Club started, Buck Glenn's organization had just been founded and uh, Glenn needed scientific advisors. I was walking across the Berkeley campus one day, looked at my cell phone. In fact, I was going from a lecture I'd given on mental illness to my students uh, over at the gym to play full-court basketball, which I try to do a couple of times a week. <laughs> and there was a New York City call, and it was Glenn Close, cold calling me, asking if I'd become a scientific advisor to bring change to mind. And again, the long story short is, within a year, Bring Change to Mind took on the high school club model. I see. We have done studies looking at kids who joined these clubs at the beginning of the year and on a randomly assigned basis, uh, not starting a club at other schools till the middle of the year. We're finding some better knowledge in the kids who start the clubs earlier, but most importantly, better attitudes, 
more practices that they're doing in their daily life to combat stigma and helping themselves and their friends to reduce what's called the social distance, keeping at arm's length from any, anybody or anyone uh, disclosing mental health issues. So with this evidence base, uh, the clubs are now in 180 high schools in California. Really? Just starting this year, uh, we're trying to get an economic model to scale up uh, and and bring, when we can get the right funding, this to a national level. So um, here I am a couple of months ago in downtown San Francisco checking on the year's agenda uh, for the, the, the high school clubs and bring change to mind. And Dennis and Manola walk in the office, and within a few seconds of hearing about their project and Robert Pearson, I thought, let's talk more. So we met in Berkeley the next day in our brand-new psychology building, and I said, whatever I can do to help this project, let's go for it. It turns out that, as we'll talk about in the next a little while, I hope, my whole introduction to the field of mental health came through my father who would disappear from time to time when I was a boy. And I don't mean for a day or two, I mean for three months, six months, or when I was in third grade, a full year. And nothing was ever said. He just was gone. Mom was not allowed to talk about it. When Dad came back, it's as though there'd been a time warp, and life went on as it had before, and he never discussed where he went. When he was gone, I didn't know if he was dead or alive. He was in some of the country's worst mental hospitals, involuntarily placed for bouts of very wild behavior, which I, a couple of years after I'd started college, helped to diagnose with bipolar disorder. He'd been misdiagnosed as some variant of having schizophrenia since he was 16. Once I started college, flew back to Ohio from back east where I almost finished my freshman year, my first spring break back home, Dad pulled me in his study and said, son, he was a philosopher. He had a sort of formal way of speaking sometimes. Yeah. Son, perhaps you should hear about some episodes and incidents in my life. And we began for the next 40 minutes a series of discussions that we had several times a year until he passed away about his journey through wild manias, sometimes quite grandiose, serious depressions, being on the wrong medications since the early 50s, getting electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, which, of course, Robert Piercig had a right. number of uh, early in his life as, right. as an adult. My dad had unnecessary treatments. Uh, ECT can be a lifesaver if you've got uh, severe depression these days, but back in the 50s, it was often used indiscriminately uh, for any diagnosis, uh, the procedures weren't done as carefully as they are today. Right. And so here I was as an 18-year-old, finally understanding why my childhood had been such a mystery, why Dad, who was a warm, uh, great philosopher, a wonderful Dad, would just vanish, and, and I was left to, to wonder what on earth had happened. It must have been my fault. Maybe if I'd been a better yeah. son, yeah. he wouldn't have gone away. When kids are in family, where there's a problem, but nobody talks about it, kids have really two fundamental choices. Number one, I guess the world's 
a pretty cruel random place, not a very uh, optimistic point of view, or number two, maybe I was in control. Maybe it's somehow my fault. You internalize when your parents are divorcing or your dad disappears or whatever the situation is. Yeah. So finally the truth was revealed. I became committed to psychology and working with kids and families and mental health. But until I came out of the closet myself, I didn't tell anybody for several years what my dad was telling me. Yeah. I had internalized the shame and stigma, and I was, of course, terrified that I'd be next in line to, quote, lose my mind and end up in snake pit-like mental hospitals. So it was both a revelation and a terror. Now I'm a senior in college getting to know dad better, getting to know myself better, still struggling with the knowledge. And I read this new book. I got the paperback once it was released called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, uh-huh. which was a seminal experience in my life. Yeah. Right at the time when I was discovering who my dad was and who I was. And of course, this is a book about a father-son journey and self-awareness and so much more. So that's the overly long introduction to how Dennis and Manol and I got together and are now working on their project together and how I came in to, to become a psychologist and work clinically and in research uh, and in stigma reduction and trying to be an advocate on top of my other role. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to do that for uh, young children and adolescents uh, because you know that was a, such a sensitive time in your life. Absolutely. Now, Steve, can I ask you a question? I. <clears throat> I noticed I had I've read your book by the way and um, it's really good. There is this uh, description of you trying to uh, to understand what your father had gone through and why, and that he had been misdiagnosed as being schizophrenic. This was the same diagnosis that had been imposed on Robert Persick during the day, but that was before the idea of bipolar and an understanding of the bipolar uh, situation, which your father fit. You said. Uh, almost a textbook example of it, where they have almost this messianic enthusiasm for life, and then they can enter into a depression afterwards. And yeah. it seems that right. that parallels very closely to the descriptions of Robert Persig and his personality type. So I'm, I, right. I'm suspicious that he was also actually bipolar and not, uh, and that catatonic schizophrenia, which he was diagnosed with, might have also been, in his case, a misdiagnosis. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, how uh, schizophrenia has been dropped and bipolar, and, and what are the mm, the signs that somebody has a bipolar disorder? Right, and I'm not uh, I'm not good at armchair diagnosis, but I certainly thought when I read the book, and I've certainly thought many times since that not only my dad, the philosopher Virgil Hinshaw Jr., or Robert Piercey, but many people, especially in the United States. We're, we're misdiagnosed. So let, let's do a little bit of a historical tour. Huh. Schizophrenia is a severe form of mental illness. Uh, it exists in every culture that's ever been looked at. You can read accounts of it in the Koran and the Bible. It's been around uh, since human history started. And with schizophrenia, there are many different symptoms, but the most salient are that the person becomes highly irrational. Uh, endures bouts of psychosis, hearing voices, auditory hallucinations, sometimes seeing visions that aren't there, even in some severe cases, tasting things that aren't there, smelling things that aren't there, all all the sensory apparatus um, 
starts to play tricks with one's mind. Delusions are another feature. Having a very strongly held set of beliefs that, unfortunately, no one else believes. And uh, the consensus is that these beliefs are highly irrational. Maybe there's a radio transmitter that's been implanted in your head uh, controlling your behavior through signals from Jupiter. Right. Possible, but highly, highly unlikely. <laughs> Yet the person experiencing such a delusion is convinced that it's the absolute truth and that everybody else is wrong. Right. Absolutely. Schizophrenia can come in bouts for episodes. But for people with the chronic form of schizophrenia, many of the hallucinations and delusions and some of the underlying low motivation difficulty relating socially never quite seem to go away. There's a chronic nature to this. Bipolar disorder, on the other hand, used to be called manic depressive illness. In some ways, that's a better description because it cycles of manias and depression. Had, as you just mentioned, Dennis, periods that might start off softly with, but greatly with decreased need for sleep, a sense that one is living out a special purpose. Ideas come fast and furious. Hypomania. And then that mania may progress to the point, in many cases, where that sense of being a special person includes hearing voices telling you what a special person you are. And as in my dad's first episode when he was 16, back in the middle of the 30s, having the belief that he was a specially placed person on Earth to save the world, and save the United States in particular, from the oncoming Nazi threat, and that no one else could do it, but he had in fact developed the belief that if he opened up his arms, they'd become wings and he could fly, and his flight would send a message to the free world's leaders to save the free world. Wow. Wow. During that phase of mania, the hallucinations and delusions can be pretty similar to those of schizophrenia. So it's not a mystery in some ways why there could be a, a misdiagnosis. And in fact, in the United States, from about a century ago, about 1920, for the next 50 years, if you had any symptom of psychosis, any hallucination or delusion, you were automatically placed in the schizophrenia category, even though, if we took a step back, in case one, there might be a person with very chronic form of schizophrenia, and in case two, those symptoms would wax and wane over the months and years from being very florid to periods of perfect normality in between, what we call a euthymic state. Right. The diagnosis is made not just on the symptoms you show up with in the emergency department or at your psychiatrist's office on a given day. It's looking at the whole lifespan. And so I got, uh, in some ways, wiser, quicker than my dad's uh, doctors yeah. and figured out by the end of college that this waxing and waning of symptoms was classic manic depressive illness or bipolar disorder. Yes. I had the feeling, as I was having these insights about my dad, that Robert Persick might have had some of the same cycling, but at the worst moments, the, the most severe moments of his episodes, um, with some of the delusional beliefs he probably had, like everyone else in the United States of those times, you were automatically uh, 
least in the schizophrenia category, and I wondered if that were accurate or not. So, okay, we're going um, to talk. We're going to continue with that in the next hour, if you don't mind, Steve. We're hitting a hard break. That'd be perfect. Stephen Hinshaw is the website. Stephen S T E P H E N Hinshaw H I N S H A W dot com. You find more information. Dennis and Manola are in the studio talking about Robert Pierce's journey. We will be right back. You were talking uh, very interestingly about the difference between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and uh, explaining that with your father as well as uh, expressing your concern that not only many people have probably been misdiagnosed in the past, but still that is something that, that happens a lot. Uh, the, the, there is a rampant amount of people who are diagnosed as being depressed. Um, I, I deal with it. I, I have talked to people for the last 25, 24 years, 25 years about health issues that they have. And when people have a low thyroid, for example, and uh, they just feel they're gaining weight and they get sluggish and they have some more anxiety and depression and insomnia and they're losing their hair and their skin is dry and their eyes are, you know, they're getting worse, they feel depressed. And they go to a doctor, and a doctor, they misdiagnose them in the blood test. Uh, the ranges on the blood test are simply uh, way too broad for a correct diagnosis. And so people are diagnosed as depressed, and the next thing you know, they're on antidepressants. Well, it is simply a hormonal imbalance. And a similar thing is for women who are dealing with their uh, PMS symptoms. And if that includes depression, many women say, well, I have it. I've had it for 12 years. All of a sudden, they're being put on antidepressants. And so I feel that once people hit that cycle of antidepressants, it's very difficult to get rid of it. Is that also a concern that you see, Steve? So uh, let's see. We'll take up this topic for our seminar for the next year. I'll fly over. So let's get a couple of things clear. Mental illness is real. It's, it's not mythical. No, you're right. Schizophrenia is real. Yep. Bipolar disorder is real. Major depression is real. Yeah. All of these are broad categories, and the symptoms overlap, and there's confusion among the world's experts about where one leaves off and the other kicks in. That's number one. Number two, we don't have in psychiatry yet, we may never have in, in all cases, but we don't have biological markers. We know if you've got cancer, because we can see cells proliferating and we can see tumors. Uh, the same for hypothyroidism, as you just pointed out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For major depression, we diagnose on the basis of symptoms rather than unequivocal signs. This drives the critics wild who say, uh, it's just cultural difference and no, there's no such thing as mental illness and it's all just behaviors not accepted by a culture. There's some truth to that, and overdiagnosis can be a problem, but so is underdiagnosis. Yeah, People yeah, yeah. living for years with problems, and they don't know it's a form of mental illness, or even if they suspect it, they're too ashamed to talk about it. Yeah, A famous study done uh, over a decade ago now in the United States by our colleague Ron Kessler of the Harvard School of Public Health Long story short on the study, if you're an adult and you've experienced symptoms of mental health issues, mental, mental illness, yes. from the day you first noticed that, 
there were these problems. What's the average length of time that it took you to seek consultation and help? The average 10 years. Wow. Wow. And in some cases, like with OCD, it might be 15 to 20 years. This is months, years of lost opportunity, blaming yourself, not being uh, at peace with the world, and not getting the help you need. Now, there's other issues. Uh, What is our health care system like? What is our mental health care system like? Do we still have parity? same degree of treatment for mental health as physical health. No, there's structural issues in health care that we need to address. Right. We don't right. fund mental health research to the same extent that we fund, quote, physical health research. But one of the barriers that I'm most concerned about is you can't talk about it because it would be shameful to admit that you've got the weak character of someone with depression or you're crazy, you have bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or PTSD. Yeah. These are real illnesses, if we had better research, which we're doing uh, and we need more funding for, to understand the complex causes of these conditions, remember, the brain is the most complex entity we know of in our known universe. Yes. 100 billion neurons, 100 trillion synapses. No wonder it's complicated. And the symptoms of mental illness aren't the symptoms of cancer or lung disease, they're the symptoms of you don't feel at one with yourself. Your perception of the world is distorted. You feel the blame for things that really aren't your fault at all. Mm -hmm. When emotions and behaviors are the subject matter, no wonder it's partly subjective, and no wonder we think it's all under your personal control. The subject matter of of, of mental illness is inseparable from who who one is, what oneself is, and the culture and environment one grows up in. So it's it's biopsychosocial. It's not all biology. It's not all culture. It's a complex uh, amalgamation uh, of the two. And that's why it's such a a difficult yet fascinating topic, and I'm glad we're talking about it now. Well, you know, Steve, when I was in your office, you had mentioned that it wasn't very long ago that if somebody had cancer, they wouldn't even want it to be known. It was uh, a shameful thing to share with others. So there was a stigma about that, which we've now overcome, and yet that persists in mental illness. So if a person overcomes cancer or they break their arm and it's healed, uh, everybody congratulates them. But if you've gone through a deep depression or or a bipolar situation, now suddenly you're in sort of a, a different category as if it's kind of a permanent condition when, in fact, It can be overcome, as I think that uh, Robert Persig's life demonstrated. He was like uh, coming out of the ashes. Yeah, like the flight of the phoenix bird, right? He wrote his book after he had gone through 27 sessions of shock therapy, lost his memory, regained it over time, and then he writes this masterpiece of a book, which I think uh, makes him kind of a hero to all those that have gone through things than thinking somehow or another that that disqualifies them for great accomplishments later in their lives. That, that's certainly not the case. They can overcome it, and they can participate in society at a very deep and meaningful level. And it would be I a shame. I couldn't agree with you more. Yes. I mean, but it, it, as, and I say this uh, advisedly, knowing the stigmatizing language I'm using, if you're crazy enough to admit you have a mental illness, still today in 2018 in the United States, you'll probably automatically lose custody of your kids because, of course, you can't wow. take good parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. 
you, you can't you can't vote or serve on a jury or run for office, right? Because you're not fit. Yeah. You, yeah. you and you won't get your driver's license renewed because if you have a history of an eating disorder, of course you can't drive a car. I mean, it sounds <laughs> yeah. you know, absurd just to think about it, but those are the laws in half of our states still hmm. today. Well, this reminds I me. I want to emphasize. That, yeah, I just want to emphasize quickly the point you made. Back in the '30s, '40s, and even the '50s, if your relative died of cancer, that was never in the obituary because, of course, cancer was a shameful disease, a mysterious disease, probably brought on by your uh, low uh, moral fiber or weak personal character. Wow. Today, wow. it's to cause everybody's fighting cancer. Yes, we've had sea change in a, in a generation or two, but we're not there. We're not close to there yet for mental illness. Wow. Yeah this, is, yeah, this is like Robert said when he got let out of the hospital. He needed to get work. He had two young children. He had a wife yep. and a home, and so he needed to find work. And he went and applied to like over 30 companies, and they all asked for his kind of record. Oh. And he had to put in, you know, that he was in a mental hospital. So oh he, was, he's, he was denied employment. Yeah. And then this other um, company actually forgot to ask him, and he got hired, and he did a great job. Of course, he was yeah. brilliant. He was brilliant. He well, was. and prior to that, he had been a pilot. He loved to fly small aircraft, but they took away his flying license after he went through mental illness. He could no longer do that, yep. yes. and that's when yep. he picked up the motorcycle exactly. and began to experience how you know the experience of going through nature on a bike. And he said, "That's actually better because yeah, you're right there it in more. it and part of it." And so it actually led him to have those journeys on a motorcycle after he lost it. So in that case, it turned into a positive. But still, nevertheless, the idea that you are forced to lose all kinds of privileges in society uh, is just um, one of these uh, manifestations of stigma about mental illness. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, so my dad, um, after his first episode at age 16, when he thought he could save the free world by flying, <laughs> Yeah. He flew from the roof of his house. He survived the fall. It wasn't wasn't a, a three-story house, mercifully. Yeah, I think I um, Got placed in a horrible mental facility in Southern California that he lived in Pasadena at the time. His family did. Um, believed the food was poisoned by the Nazis. Yeah. Went, my dad was an athlete. He was a shot putter and played football. Went from 180 pounds to 117. Wow. And his father was called in by the superintendent of the facility uh, because the minister was going to administer last rites that night because oh they were afraid that uh, their now 17-year-old patient had basically starved himself to death based on this delusional belief that the Nazis had poisoned the food at the mental hospital. Wow. Dad recovered a few months later, almost spontaneously. Some people with bipolar disorder, when that cycle's done, it's done, um, and went back to his now he was 17, not 16, uh, got straight A's in high school and at Pasadena Junior College, went to Stanford, went to Princeton for grad school, studied with Bertrand Russell for a year in a one-on-one tutorial when Russell was over on sabbatical from England, and then got to know Albert Einstein and wrote a chapter on Einstein's social and moral philosophy and wow. had launched at age 25 a wow. career as one of the best and brightest new philosophers in the United States. But just after Amazing. he finished his dissertation, he thought he could predict the end of the Second World War via telepathy. Uh, the world came both ramping up and crashing down. One of the myths is we think you're either manic and grandiose and elated or you're depressed. Many people with bipolar disorder have what are called mixed episodes. You've got the energy of the mania, 
Yeah. But you're despairing and have the mood of depression. The world gets to be a miserable place really quickly. Yes. People with bipolar disorder have an inordinately high suicide rate. Yes. Almost half of people with bipolar disorder, if they're not treated, yeah. will attempt to end their lives. And 30 to 40% of those attempters end up completing suicide. Bipolar disorder is not just a romantic journey. It's a life-threatening illness because the energy is at odds with the despair you feel, and you can't imagine that you'll ever be stable again. And this is why treatment's so needed. This is why people have to talk about it. And when it's still too shameful to have it talked about, everybody loses. And the final point is, Dad kept his job. Our family stayed together despite his episodes and disappearances because he had tenure. Yes. He achieved tenure at age 30 at Ohio State My because goodness. of his brilliant philosophy. Any other job, I'm sure he would have lost, given how wild his behavior got at the worst of his episodes. And then where would our family have been? We need safeguards in place so that if you have a leave uh, to get treatment for cancer, you could get a leave to get your mental health issues treated, <laughs> and you can come back. And again, the, the ultimate paradox is, we can treat mental health conditions. We can't cure them yet. We're not there yet. But treatments for mental health conditions are, on average, better than most treatments you'll get from your doctor for your physical health problem. But we don't have access to care because of insurance coverage problems and because of the shame and stigma that still enshroud the entire topic. Yes. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, written by Robert Persich, who taught at Montana College back in the day. And he, um, he was actually from Minnesota, right? Is that right? Yeah, he was and born so in Minneapolis. He was born in Minneapolis. And then uh, after he had taught over here, he went back to Minneapolis and went through the whole uh, mental health issues and the, the electric shock treatments and he took a journey on a motorcycle. And many of you know the story because many of you, I know, have read the book, um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It was a journey that took him back through Bozeman. And as a matter of fact, when he was in Bozeman for a few days, he uh, stayed with some people, uh, the, we the, the Weezes, Bob and Ginny the Weez, and uh, a lot of the memory actually came back to him. A lot of memory came back, right? Yes, he talks about in his book how he visited his former office. That's right, and, and Montana Hall. There, in uh -huh. Montana Hall there, and also some of the classrooms. But when he was in his office and he looked out the windows and recognized those landscapes, yes, uh, he said that it was like a cascade of memories huh. entered into his consciousness. And he began to recall uh, many of the things that he had experienced there. Yes, flashes of memory just poured poured into his, his consciousness. Now, whether that is typical of a person that has gone through shock therapy, I don't know. Uh, but maybe he had a certain readiness to, you know, allow that former self back in because he had, of course, been kind of pushing it away because he was afraid that it, if he became the person that he had been, that it might get him into trouble again. I see. And so he, he kind of had that resistance. But at that moment, all those memories just cascaded into his mind, according to the story that he tells in the book. Yes. And suddenly he's reconnecting with his inner being that he had been prior to that, which he felt was more true to his inner self ah. and doing his mission in life. He had a sense of, I want to fulfill this mission. 
and it was being blocked by the fact that he would not allow that the reemergence, a uh, reintegration of his former personality. So I don't mm-hmm. know enough about it to uh, say if that's a common situation or whether memory comes back to everybody that's gone through shock therapy or if it's a permanent change and some people don't get their memory back. Yeah. I do know that he had boxes and boxes of information that he could go through and help him remember the track of philosophy that he was on, which the, he then completed uh, later in life. Yes. So I don't know, but maybe, maybe Dr. Henshaw knows more about whether or not that that becomes a, a permanent memory loss for some and not others, and whether or not when you administer shock therapy then or even today, how predictable is it? I understand that it's like giving somebody a grand mal seizure of electricity through the brain. How it works and how it can heal the mind, does, it doesn't, it's not understood. No, and I, I, I would understood. love to hear that. Uh, Steve, I'd love you to talk about it, but we're hitting another break here. And uh, when sure. we come back after that break... Let's just uh, jump on that because I want to understand it no, too. And I Manola question. has a few uh, questions as well. A couple of websites. Uh, sites. First of all, Persig's Journey. Persig's Journey. P-I-R-S-I-G-S Journey.com will tell you more about the project. And Dr. Stephen Hinshaw, who is on the phone with us, it's Stephen with P-H, Hinshaw, H-I-N-S-H-A-W dot com. Find out more information. We're going to take a short break, and we will be right back. Stay tuned, please. Dennis mentioned that um, Robert Persick later said it, it's not really a book about Zen, and it's really not about motorcycle maintenance either. Right, right Dennis? Right, exactly right. <laughs> it's really a, um, a journey of self-discovery, and I've found by talking to certain people that have followed that route, yeah. All those that I have talked to, they're not just doing the physical route, but they're also going through an inner journey of self-discovery. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, so this person's journey always seems to have uh, two reasons, and one is to see the beautiful landscapes, but the other is certainly a journey of self-discovery. Mm-hmm. Which is what the two parallel stories are, parallel stories are that are running in the book. Yes. Right, 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 mm-hmm. right. And, and of course... It's, it's that inner journey that really interests Persig very deeply. I mean, he says, like, for example, if uh, you go up to a mountain to experience Zen, you only bring as much Zen as you already have within you when, when you've left. That's interesting. I love Makes that total quote. sense, yes. Yeah. I just, uh, Steve, I really appreciate you spend a little time with us this morning because you are a very busy and wanted man. So thanks so much for, for, for joining us today in Bozeman. Yes, thank you, Steve, very much. Well, now, thanks for the invitation. And I'm not sure I want to be called a wanted man, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Highly accomplished. Yeah. In, well, in, well in, I come from, that's positive. Yeah, very positive. Now, <laughs> what we, one thing that we like to address is the, uh, the diagnosis as well as the electric shock therapy. And one of the questions was that Dennis started talking about and that I would like you to continue with is the, do those kind of treatments have an effect on memory and how does that work? And maybe you can give us some insights into these treatments, please. So electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, or, or commonly known as electroshock therapy, originated essentially back in the 40s. It seemed like a desperate measure. We're going to put electrodes over a person's skull anesthetize them, and induce a grand mal seizure in their brain. And that might help cure some forms of mental illness. Well, it seems kind of barbaric. 
for many years, it was a fairly barbaric treatment. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Correct. Really depicted how it could be used uh, punitively, etc. Today, it's used rarely, but when it is used now, with much shorter pulses of current, with very good anesthetics, uh, combining with talk therapy uh, during and not during, but but after the treatments. It may be one of the most effective treatments we have for very serious depression yeah. when all the talk therapy and medications in the world have worked. So we want to take it out of the, the kind of um, realm of one flew over the cuckoo's nest and think that anybody who got shock treatment, it was just used as punishment. It can be a very effective treatment today. But, yeah. number one, during the 50s, um, and 60s, it was often used indiscriminately. It wasn't used as well. Number two, we don't know really how it works. How does inducing a seizure in your head um, help cure depression? We're still not sure. And number three, the biggest side effect was, and in some cases still is, a loss of some of your long-term memory. Now, you, you once you've had an ECT, you don't have much memory for that treatment. Everybody who has a seizure in some ways has some memory lapse. Do you have to have a longer-term gap in your long-term memory for the treatment to work? Probably not. This is really a side effect, not not a mechanism of change. But in the very interesting uh, discussion uh, that we were having uh, with Dennis uh, before this last break, this very moving recapturing of memories that Robert Piercig so, so beautifully depicted was that a sort of existential awakening to an earlier period of his life that he had kept at bay because he didn't want to recapitulate some of the mental illness symptoms he'd been fighting? Or, or maybe more appropriately, and or, could he have had some long-term memory problems as a function of his ECT treatments that became slowly regained? I think the answer is yes, probably some of both. We do know that in some individuals uh, treated poorly with electroconvulsive therapy, uh, memory doesn't come back well. Uh-huh. Many other people have some long-term memory problems that can recover, especially if, and this is part of my mantra about mental health treatment, it's not medication or talk therapy, or in some cases ECT, it's combining treatment. It's understanding the person's deep sort of spiritual, even insights, and using biological treatments to help combat these very lethal symptoms of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or severe depression or PTSD. Combining treatments has much greater chance of working than single treatments alone. A question I have for for you, Steve, is, is this something that is genetic or that is passed down? Uh, for two generations, because I also understand that uh, Chris, uh, Robert Pierce's son, uh, was murdered at the age of 22, so probably too young at that point to be diagnosed uh, that something was going on in his life. Um, is Do you, in your experience, professional experience, do you see that it is something that is genetically passed down? Mental illness, especially severe forms like schizophrenia, severe depression, bipolar disorder, is highly heritable. What does that mean? There's a huge genetic vulnerability. Among 
forms of mental illness, depression has a modest to moderate heritability. Life experiences also contribute greatly to people's vulnerability to depression, but genes play a role. When we get to bipolar disorder, this combination of manias and depressions and mixed episodes, 80% of the liability lies in one's genes. Schizophrenia is close to 70%. Depression, maybe 30 or 40%. So we also know, however, that for people with bipolar disorder, well, genes play a big role in one's vulnerability. But if you've also encountered earlier in your development maltreatment or abuse, the risk is escalated. It's, again, not biology or environment. It's not genes or experience. It's often both working together. And it may be that very difficult life experiences epigenetically trigger, unleash that genetic vulnerability. It's both and, not either or. Nice, right. And when you treat somebody with EST, my impression is that you really don't know at the end of a treatment or a session of treatments what change may or may not occur. Will it actually end up helping them or not? Is it something of a gamble like that, or am I mistaken? We don't know. If I go see a, a psychologist and psychotherapist to do cognitive therapy or dynamic therapy or family therapy for, for my depression, we don't know if it's going to work. The, the odds are most people benefit. We don't know if I take an SSRI for depression or a mood stabilizer like lithium for bipolar disorder, if it's going to work. We don't have precision medicine yet. We would like to be, and this is the holy grail for cancer, we want to get your genetic profile to know that you need radiation or you need chemotherapy or someone else needs third treatment. We don't know if you've had years of very serious depression and suicide's a constant threat. If getting eight or ten, which would be kind of a, a more modern, you'd get eight or ten initial factors, eight or ten more, of ECT, of electroconvulsive or shock therapy. We don't know if it's going to work. The odds are, for most people, it's going to help. We don't have the predictions yet. This is why we need more funding for mental health research. Mm. We want to know Dennis's treatment um, plan based on his life experience and genetic profile uh, uh, versus Jacobus's, right? Right, right. That's right. our goal, but we're not, we're not there yet. And Manolas might be different from the... From, from both of yours. Yes. Right. I'm, only a, <laughs> you know what? I'm only a little unstable sometimes. You what? I'm only a little unstable sometimes. <laughs> That's what That's you say. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, so, and, 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 and the final point is, how does psychotherapy work? Yeah. Is it uh, getting emotionally more connected with your past? Is it having coping strategies? Is it... Um, finding ways to regulate your emotions better? Is it understanding your family dynamics better? Probably for different people, all of the above. We don't exactly know how SSRIs alleviate depression. It has something to do with serotonin, but it's more, much more complicated than we first thought. We don't know how a mood stabilizer evens out the cycles of mania and depression. We don't know how inducing a seizure in your brain sometimes for people with severe depression, can be a lifesaver. We have treatments that work symptomatically before we know the underlying mechanism. Yes. As I said a little while ago, the brain's incredibly complicated. Absolutely. It's not surprising that we still don't know yet, but that's why I'm in this field. It's the most fascinating topic, I think, imaginable, but 
as I tell my students at Berkeley, if you like very clear answers to precise problems, we have a great school of engineering, three buildings down from psychology. <laughs> if you're in the mental health field, psychiatry and psychology, you have to tolerate a lot of ambiguity, but the discoveries are happening all the time, and they're really exciting. Do you wonder sometimes why depression is showing up so much in our young people today and that suicides are up amongst teenagers, including children as low as four and five years old who commit suicide um, or who die by suicide. Is that something that you sometimes shake your head and said, I thought we started to figure things out here. Uh, how come that it starts so early? Well, uh, we, we know right in between uh, the death by suicide this past summer of, of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. Yes. The Centers for Disease Control came out with the 20-year data showing suicides on the rise in our country for all age groups, yeah. particularly young people, but also young adults, middle-aged people, and older adults as well. Yes. It can't be over a 20-year period that the genes that make you vulnerable to depression, bipolar disorder, are mutating that quickly. There must be something about the culture and experience and pressures that's unleashing this genetic potential. If I had the answers for that, I'd have retired a long time ago, right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's something about, and, and, and it's happening not only first world, but second and third world, too. The leading cause of death around the world for girls 15 to 19 is suicide wow. across all nations. That's horrible. This wow. is a tragedy. There's hormonal changes, of course, that occur during puberty, and there's unique pressures of being a girl coming of age uh, that I talked about. One of my earlier books called The Triple Bind, Saving Our Teenage Girls from Today's Pressures. It's a combination of biology and experience. Um, you could talk about school pressures. You could talk about not much of a chance. to. If you've got to be perfect all the time to get into the right school and, and walk on that perfect pathway, what is life all about? Making mistakes, trying things out, uh, but you don't—you don't have the liberty, especially being, a, especially as a girl, of trying that out these days. I think these are the experiential factors that interact with genetic vulnerabilities in some cases to lead to this shocking but real increase in suicide uh, in our country and in other countries. Folks, uh, this is Gesundheit with Jacobus, News Radio AM 1450 KMMS, where Montana talks, AM 1340 KPRK, Livingston and Park County. We are talking about Robert Persig's book, the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Uh, he did that journey 50 years ago in 1968, wrote the book, published it in 19, was published in 1974 after he had uh, tried I don't know, than, how many publishers? 122. 122 publishers. It is uh, many, many tens of millions of copies have been sold in the meantime. Uh, and still today, the book sells about 30,000, 40,000 copies in 20, 23 different languages, 27 different languages around the world. So it is amazing what this book is still doing today for many people. Good morning, Carla. Thanks for holding on here while we were talking. What's your name, please? How can we help you? Um, yeah, good morning. This is uh, Marion Bakra. Hey, Marion. Hi. Hi. It's a great show. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, I have a question regarding 
spoke about the epigenetics of mental illness, uh, bipolar, and importance of medication and therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. And I have a question I have not heard any talking about processing trauma and I'm sure um, you're familiar with the book The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Mm-hmm. He's a psychiatrist and he started you know, working in Boston with veterans with severe PTSD. Yeah. And he was a well, conventionally trained and also conventionally practiced psychiatry and uh, you know, then he got more into other methodologies of, you know, how do we process trauma. And, yeah, considering, you know, there is this genetic vulnerability for a mental illness, but then, you know, the genes are then expressed potentially to traumatic early life experiences. And, of course, the definition of trauma is not necessarily a major event, but just the way the child perceives you know, what's happening to him, and earlier you were talking about, you know, you blame yourself, you know, when your parent is gone you know, for, who knows, three months, and it must be my fault. Yes, <laughs> yeah. What, um, are you familiar with Bessel van der Kolk and his work, and the, bo- and the book The Body Keeps the Score, and his discussion on different forms of processing trauma from ENDR, neurofeedback, Art therapy, because processing trauma is not a cognitive process. It's really an emotional process, and he did all these functional MRI scans to show how people's brains are offline depending on trauma and how that can actually heal. So there actually is a little bit of diagnostics that can be done. It's just not done conventionally. Let's see if he has uh, heard of Bessel van der Kolk. So this is, this is Steve again, and I, I have, and I have read, and the, the whole area of PTSD among uh, veterans, uh, among uh, sexual assault survivors, uh, is, is a huge area of research, and, and the Veterans Administration is doing a lot of great work these days. Yeah, but it's, not, it's actually not just generally. veterans. It's not just veterans and sexual assault. But that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's right. This is, how do I experience uh, the vicissitudes of growing up in uh, a so-called non-traumatic family. Uh, what's my role in interpreting what's going on in family communication that uh, my sibling doesn't interpret the same way? Is this the chicken and the egg? Is it in the individual? Is it in the experience? Is it in the interpretation of experience? The answer is yes. It's all of the above. And this kind of work, integrating more traditionally psychodynamic individual experiences and emotion with neuroscience to understand the the literal marks in the brain left by all kinds of traumatic experiences. This is the this is our holy grail these days mm-hmm. to not be reductionistic but to be integrationist and say, how does experience unleash uh, epigenetically expressed genetic vulnerability? Mm-hmm. Mental illness is an equal opportunity um, uh, set of conditions across nations and across social classes and cultures, but some people are more vulnerable than others, mm-hmm. both because of genetic vulnerability and because of early experience, and not just early experience, but later life experience, too. So I'm glad you brought this up, because it's a, it's a hallmark of how integrated we need to get these days in our mm-hmm. approaches. 
Okay. Which brings to mind to me, uh, maybe you could just mention this, uh, Steve, the experience that your mother had to endure, because she had to keep it a secret from her children, which you were one of, and from her neighbors, and she had to carry this burden of keeping the family together and having to live with the stigma and the impact that it must have had on her personal life and psychology. You say that it probably was the precursor to a very severe rheumatoid arthritis as she had to deal with this yeah. in, in She silence. dealt with it for the last 40 years of her life. I mean, this is the, the, one of the huge tragedies. It's family members that so often carry the burden. They're the one to keep the stiff upper lip up or the appearances to neighbors. My mom couldn't even tell her own mother why her husband had disappeared and vanished so many times. Yeah. It's very sad. Family members need support. How are we going to combat stigma? We've got to talk about it, provide resources, not just for the individual experiencing symptoms of mental illness, but for everyone around him or to him or her, including family members. What would have happened if we'd had a family therapist who would allowed us to actually talk about the truth when I was growing up? Yeah. Um, it would have been a very different experience. I, I still think I would have gone into psychology and been as inspired as I am now to do what I've done. But a lot of suffering and a lot of inappropriate, unnecessary soul-searching, I think, could have been prevented. Yeah. Wow, what a great way to end that. I thank you so much for being on the program yeah, today. Thanks, Steve. It's really wonderful. Uh, I appreciate being on with all of you. Good luck with your project. And Thank we'll you. be in touch in the near future. Yes, thank thank you. Thanks, Steve. You bet. Okay. All the best to you, folks. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we will talk more about uh, Robert Persick's book, The Journey, The Zen and Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. We have uh, Lee Glover with us. Uh, Lee, thank you so much for joining us for this last hour. It's my pleasure, and good morning to you and Manola and Dennis. Hi, Lee. Hi, Lee. Uh, you know, Manola actually wants to tell a story how uh, she met you and got and you got involved with this, uh, Manola. Yeah, as you as you know, making a project requires a lot, a lot, a lot of research, and so that's exactly my job as the producer yeah. of this uh, documentary film. And I was doing research, finding out if other persons had made documentaries on Robert Persick, and in fact, yes. Anthony McGuad, who's the individual who's received his, the first PhD in MOQ or Metaphysics of Quality, did one, and it's called On the Road with Robert Persick. And then also, I found out that Lee Glover had done Glover. Glover. We talked sorry, about this last sorry, night. <laughs> you know, Glover, Four Leaf Clover. It's not like Clover. I can't teach them the same. If it's I like say Danny. It Danny Glover. Yeah. Um, so I found out that he had made a film Meridium, and then I said, "Okay, good. How can I get a hold of these guys?" And I found some contact information for Lee through Facebook, as a matter of fact, imagine that. And I messaged him and said, hey, you know, we're working on putting together a documentary. And I heard you, you know, I read that you did your film Meridium, but I can't find it. And now I know why. Yeah. But so that's how we contacted. We came, we started communicating back in March. And then he was going to come with us on our scouting trip. It didn't work out. And he was instrumental in helping us across the 2,700 miles, ah. by pointing out the different stops that Robert went to. And oh. we, we were in communication with him the whole time. And then a couple of weeks ago, he was here for his birthday on the 16th. All right. And he brought his bike, and then we went up to Beartooth Pass and rode the bike up to the summit. It was so much fun. Happy birthday, or belated anyways. And that's how, you know, Lee became involved with the project. That's amazing. 
Also, I'd like to just do a, a shout out because Tina Deweese, who oh, is yes. the daughter of the Deweeses, where Jeannie Robert and, Spur- Bob, yeah. yes, Jeannie and Bob, where Robert personally actually stayed while she, she was, I think, 13 years old at the time. Yes. And uh, had met Chris and had met Robert. In, in any case, I made contact with her. And she has been so instrumental and helpful. She's put me into contact with all of those that are intimately involved with Robert Persig and his philosophy. Uh, pilgrims, as well as scholars and different people. And in fact, we have on our website one of those scholars, David Buchanan, who lives in Denver. And uh, as part of our trip, we stopped in Denver and we did this interview with him, which turned out to be uh, a, a good, in-depth, and quick uh, insight into Robert Persig's thinking, into his um, metaphysics of quality, and uh, we put excerpts of that on our website, so you, oh, could, yeah, you yeah. can find a, a part of that. It's a 40-minute interview, and but I think we've, our excerpts go about four and a half minutes. Yeah, and Lee has a page on our website, too. No, and, and uh, Lee, we're going to really talk to you, yeah, so hold Lee, on to a turn. There's something else I've been totally forgetting to say, okay. and it is that you have created podcasts that are oh, being right. broadcasted on other radio station. Yeah. Uh, which one is that? 95.9. KGBM. 95.9. FM. KGBM. Yeah, VM. VM. So yeah. KGVM 95.9. It's a community radio station. Right. It's an FM station. Yeah. And it comes on every, the new episodes come on Friday at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. And, and we I, have the two pods up on the website that you can listen to. I, I tell you, they let me listen to the one from last night, and it is a delight to listen to both Dennis and Manola, how they just start and they finish each other's sentences and they each bring their own energy and uh, there's a little bit light music in the background and they're talking about Robert Persig's journey and there's going to be a total of 10, ten and there's only two available but the two are already available on your website persigsjourney.com delightful they're all about uh, less than 10 minutes each so I would highly recommend either listen Friday nights or go to the website yes yeah. thank all you right. thank yes you. Yeah, I you just bet. like to say one more thing before we get in with Lee and that is that the story of Robert Persig is really positive and optimistic and hopeful. Um, and, and the documentary will reflect that. It, it's not, the emphasis is not going to be on his mental illness. It's no. going to be on what he accomplished afterwards. Yes. And also the journey that he describes and the, per, uh, the, the personal self-discovery and the rehabilitation of his relationship with his son. Uh, and very lightly touch on the philosophies and his ideas but most of it is going to be a visual experience of traveling across the country uh, with upbeat music and, and, yeah. and you know, some of the nostalgic music of the era and that kind of a thing. Uh, I think that if people have been listening since the beginning, it might sound like that we're going to have this very heavy and ponderous and almost depressing subject matter to go through. Well, and we will through. touch on mental illness because sure, sure, it's a sure. big part of the book, but that's it. We're going to touch on it. Uh, Dr. Stephen Henshaw, he's going to talk about it to, at, to some degree. The movie's going to be 90 minutes long, okay. so there's not that much time yeah. because we do want to dwell in, into the metaphysics of quality. We want to really explore the beauty of America, Midwest, from St. Paul across you know, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Montana Idaho. Idaho, Wyoming, and Cal- Oregon, California, and it's just spectacular they sit, they call america the beautiful for a reason and it's just in the um, end of june and july it's just so beautiful and we're going to really 
replicate that so people can vicariously take the trip with us on with the documentary as they learn about philosophy. Wow. Yes. So, Lee, the floor is yours because you have done this journey twice. And uh, I, did you actually do it on the days that uh, Robert Persick did it? And I think it was July? Um, yeah, sort of. I, I probably need to add a few clarifications. Yeah. But, but I kind of wanted to preface it by uh, pointing out uh, a couple of things I just wanted to, to note um, before I, I get into a little more of my story. And one is is there's a little more to... to Manola was saying how how we uh, we met. Uh, <laughs> Here we go. She didn't say. I wanted to share some because I, if, if you know He's me well enough, now, Ma- <laughs> Manola and Dennis and I we spent a few days together a few weeks ago. A wonderful time through Yellowstone and, and getting to know each other, and it was really really, really wonderful experience. They're great. They're great. I so love fun. those guys. Anyway, but um, um, but Manola had actually contacted me on. It was March fifth. She said March. It was actually specifically March fifth. Yes, and and that's a day of actually some significance relative to Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, and um, uh, and that w- when that particular day that she would contact me, it just jumped out. Uh, I, I'm kind of a, I, I really kind of am fascinated by the phenomenon that it's called synchronicity. Um, these kind of meaningful moments in life that have what I would refer to as high, higher quality, uh, I think I think makes makes a lot of sense. But anyway, um, as it turns out, um, Robert Persig had inscribed to one of the characters in the book uh, 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 a woman by the name of Willa Barsness, uh, who who and her husband were actually professors at, uh, at one time, or Jack was at Montana State College. Um, but they had moved to Boise, and this was mentioned in the book. Well, ah. after Jack Barsness, he died in 1969, so he wasn't alive when the book was published. But in, on March 5th of 1974, Robert Persig had inscribed to Willa a note in the cover of the book, the copy he gave her that said, that said I'm, and I'm, I think it's almost an exact statement here, said, Willa, Jack has the best line in the book. Robert Persig, March fifth, nineteen seventy four, huh. and um, and 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 the line because Jack Barsness only has one line in the book, which he basically says, "We don't either," and and he was responding to Chris saying that no one knew what his father was talking about, and and Jack echoed that by saying, "Well, Chris, we don't either," and and Robert Persig himself said that was the best line in the book <laughs> on March. 1974, really? and gave that copy to Willa, who lived in Boise, who I happened to meet because I lived near Boise, and we ended up having a great relationship in the in the years that she, that she had left in her life. And the interview I did with her, she considered one of the highlights of her life. So oh. it has a lot of you know real positive memories for me. Yeah. And March 5th, of course, and its significance on what Persig said on that day. And then the Manola contacting me on March 5th of this year, just kind of like... Wow. Okay, I think I should pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now, Lee, what <laughs> are the, interesting. What are the and, and that's kind of kind of led to this moment, I guess, here on 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 your show. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Lee, one of the things that I found fascinating is that people will take this pilgrimage, and I often think that everyone that has taken it is also on a personal journey, that they don't just take it for the physical experience, but because they're on some sort of an inner quest, and that Robert Persig's book had an impact in their life that changed them in some significant ways. And I wonder if you might uh, relate how that is with you personally. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I, yeah. let me, let me, because uh, it, it resonates, I think, a lot with what uh, 
Stephen Hinshaw was saying earlier in, 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 the, in the program. Um, it reminded me as, as he was talking about that, and I was thinking about you know your uh, Livingston as being you know one of your audience areas, and yeah. it reminded me of a, a story last year. I was passing through the area. I, I I kind of go back along parts of the route almost every year now. Wow! Um, and I was I was I was back in Livingston in 2017 in the summer. Yeah. And I was at the um, was my favorite place to eat in Livingston, uh, Mark's um, Beef Burgers, and I was standing in line. Um, and um, there's a gentleman standing in front of me, waiting in line, who had this beautiful tattoo on the back of his left calf. Just really gorgeous um, tattoo of a bird. And of course, I recognized it right away because it was symbolic of the phoenix. And and so that you know, I, it was clear that's what the symbol was. But it was just gorgeous. And so I asked him. I said, "Would you?" I'm just kind of curious about the bird on the back of your left leg. And, and he says, yeah, it's the phoenix. And he said, it's, he said, you know, I've had a lot of struggles in my life, and it, it's just a sim- symbol for me of overcoming huh. and, you know, turning the, the negatives into a positive. And, and so to kind of maybe preface this, it's like that's, I think, so much of our journeys, and it's what, you know, Stephen Hinshaw was referring to, and, you know, the, the personal tragedies of life and how so often they can, they can turn into these just incord- incredible experiences that, ripple out in very positive ways and uh, and that's so important to understand in the context of tragedy of in life is is sometimes how they can affect people in the most positive ways into these kind of phoenix journeys that that a lot of us and maybe most of us have in our in our lives yeah um but anyway so to get to the to answer you know talk about you know what dennis asked and, and uh kind of how I got into into this whole thing and became what has become to known as a, a Persic Pilgrim um, wasn't really my intent when I started out with this, and this has been now well over 10 years. Um, it was actually um, 2008, the summer, when I went on my journey, and it began in um, July. So, yes, it was actually 40 <laughs> years later, yeah. not to the day, but yeah. pretty close, um, to most of July and um August, I traveled the route uh, both east and west doing my own project, and, and it really kind of started out as a, a documentary film idea, much much like Dennis and Manola, um, yeah. but really kind of small, very, very small scale with kind of very, you know, little, little um, idea of what might happen. Um, but um, it, it started, the whole thing for me started, if I were to rewind a little bit here, uh, it would be the summer of 2005, okay. where uh, I ended up uh, at a yard sale in Meridian, Idaho, which is a, a community, a city just west of Boise. And uh, my wife was driving around to yard sales that day, and, and she pulled up to a yard sale. And I usually gravitate to, to books if I see them at a yard sale. That's my interest. And so there was this box of books at this yard sale, and uh, I started going through them and there was this pink paperback book down at the bottom that kind of got my attention because it had a funny title that seemed somehow vaguely familiar, like I'd heard of it before, but I'd never read it. But I picked it up, and kind of it just kind of drew me in and kind of just thumbed through it, and, and I think it was 25 cents. Huh. So I bought it, and, well, <laughs> my life was quite, never, never quite the same after that, I guess, and that was uh, in the art of motorcycle maintenance. That was the beginning of really a transformative journey in my life. 
um, because there were there were some things in the book that you know when I finished it was wasn't until 2007 uh-huh. read the first half and thought oh, it's kind of interesting yeah um, but you know set it aside it sat on the nightstand next to my bed for the next two years literally <laughs> just sat right there yeah and in 2007 I, I picked it back up and I finished it and where it gets into the mental health thing which wasn't in the first half and suddenly the book takes on a whole new character because my father had uh, had uh, a mental breakdown had, had mental illness in my childhood oh. and in fact he was arrested and incarcerated in 1968 oh. um, and which was the year this this trip took place and and so when I started I got curious about the story and so I started doing research this is in 2007 and found out pretty quickly that the journey in the book took place the same year my father was arrested and spent the next few years in um, state prison in Salem, Oregon. Um, and uh, and so now I'm really getting drawn into this story because it just really resonates um, with me uh, and my childhood, uh, more from, I guess, the Chris perspective. And so I started doing research, and late in, in 2007, I think it was December, I had this idea that came to me about, well, maybe I'd like to retrace the route in the book and I was thinking about trying to learn video technology. I wanted, I had a whole career in technology. I wanted to try something a little more artistic. And I was kind of in a midlife point of, um, of a break in life, I guess, from career. And, uh, and so I had this idea to do a simple little travel video to learn video technology and why not travel the route. Right. Uh, in the summer of 60, uh, 2008, which was 40 years later. And yep. so that was kind of the genesis of, of, the, of the, the journey. Hmm. Wow. It's, uh, again, uh, it's like Dennis mentioned earlier. It seems like everybody who does this journey has something uh, that they try to uh, memorialize, so to say. Yeah, I would say that there's, there's something there's special that's going on. It's, it, it's not out of the blue. There's something that either you get inspired to do it, or you find the inspiration while you're doing it. Right, and it seems to be that everyone that has done the journey, whether they are conscious of it or not, seem to be going through a psychological journey of their own, a self-discovery journey. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and for me, that's, that's how it uh, you know, really began and, and uh, you know, in, had some rather unusual circumstances that occurred in 2008 when I'm preparing for this journey. I ended up with a in a crisis with my own father, who's oh. still living. He's still living, but he's in you know, rather poor health today. Yeah. But yeah. we ended up in a crisis. So when I'm traveling the route, I'm you know it. The, the crisis literally threw me back to my childhood in 1968. So I'm I'm actually reliving, uh, you know, and I'm I'm 48 years old. So like I'm not I'm not a little kid anymore. But but I'm thrown back in my own past of my father's mental illness and that crisis. And uh, and then later on, I had you know a loss of my own child that had gone you know had had that crisis. So I'm kind of kind of confronting some some ghosts from the past on that journey, and and really finally you know dealing with some some psychological trauma and and, and, and processing it you know to to actually resolve it in my life rather than just have it be chasing me for the rest of my years. And 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 the the, the book and the journey became cathartic in the sense that it provided a vehicle to do that and it was wonderful in that way it was exactly what i needed was the the journey to to actually go through 
and and re uh, I, I think reestablished my my relationship with my father in a, in a new way, yeah. and really process a lot that had happened in in years earlier. One of the things that uh, I like about Robert Persick and his approach in the book is that he wants to appeal to the scientific materialistic set mindset in the West, and he wants to uh, teach this metaphysics of quality, which is very transcendental, but do it in a very non-religious, non-dogmatic kind of a way. Hmm. And so that it doesn't conflict with, you know, certain religious beliefs or beliefs that you might have, but it can take you in more of a full philosophical way of being able to realize a deeper understanding of yourself and of life. Yeah. We're going to take it's, a short it's... break, Lee. Sorry, you want okay. to say something about that? Yeah, I'll, I'll add to Dennis's thought when we get back. Awesome. We will be right back. You wanted to say something about what Dennis started talking about at the last half hour. Yes, uh, I just wanted to um, kind of add a, a thought. He talked about you know, the spiritual significance uh, in terms of a lot of the, uh, the folks who, 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 who take journeys or have transformative experiences relative to uh, the book and, yes. and what it meant to them. And, and for my journey, at its core, was, was exactly that, although I don't think in 2008 when I set off on it, I was as consciously aware of it as it would play out as, as time went on. Um, I had, in the 90s, had um, kind of took spirituality and anything that kind of, you know, dealt with any religious concepts and kind of put that part of myself on the shelf um, with the hope of one day of taking that off the shelf, but I had no idea how to do it. Mm. And, and for me, the, the, it's been in the art of motorcycle maintenance provided the means to take spirituality and, and, and religious ideas off the shelf and start to explore them in an entirely new way that would be really transformative. So, so I just wanted to kind of emphasize that in yeah. uh, adding to what, what Dennis said. As you know, someone who was born and raised in really uh, extreme uh, fundamentalist religion, which ultimately led to my father's mental illness and his 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 breakdown, was a direct result of uh, that 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 fundamentalism. Um, it was interesting to hear Stephen talk about his father in Pasadena because yes. it was actually in Pasadena where my father had a mental breakdown. Isn't that something? So I, I kind of chuckled at that at the the synchronicity of. of of that and yeah, you know, these strange connections that we find and we share with others as we go through life's journey. Yes, uh, but that was you know, but having you know, being being born and raised in a, in an environment that's all about separation and division, you know, us and them, and rules and you know, and uh, obedience and really, really dysfunctional and healthy to the human psyche. Yes, um, in order to you know, force people to conform to a set of ideas that they call truth, which really is never you know, at the absolute truth they claim, because they change it whenever it becomes convenient. Um, but that's, you know, but that was the context that, you know, that led to my father's insanity that I ultimately had to process. And what I really valued uh, in Robert Persick's work was being able to, to tackle that without falling back into dogma. And, and, and dogmatic ideas, which my kind of rational mind, you know, through training and maybe natural, you know, genetics tends to want to do. And, and so I was able to explore spirituality and come to a, you know, to kind of a transformative experience without 
falling prey to to the dogma of my own past. Well, what's interesting also is when you l listen to Persig, uh, he'll talk about that you can't really put a definition on dynamic quality, that once you've defined it, you put it in a box and you've missed it. You're, you're not defining it. You're, you're distorting it. Yeah. So it's more of an experience than it would be any kind of a rational um, understanding. And when you read his book, you can interpret it in a variety of ways. For example, uh, Peter Olson, the professor from Wisconsin, he thinks of it as a book of literature, of pure literature, huh. and a great literary classic, yeah. uh, whereas others will read it as a book of philosophy. In fact, it's often referred to as the best-selling book on philosophy ever written. Isn't that something? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, is it philosophy? Is it literature? I think really it's a combination. And also, how do you interpret it if you can't really specifically in, uh, define what quality is? And I believe that uh, Robert Persig was quite aware that there were these ambiguities, that he wanted everybody to come to their own conclusion and go into their own inner world and, and uh, discover for themselves what meaning they might derive from this book. So it lends itself mm -hmm. to all kinds of different interpretations, none of which are all right and none of which are all wrong. Right. Um, I just yeah. want to make a little tiny clarification yeah. about it's actually the most read book based on philosophy, not the best written book on philosophy. Oh, that's what I meant to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. No, maybe so it's there, both. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully one yeah, day, yeah, maybe okay, that would go. be the case. No, yeah. uh, you have to get into definitions of what the best is. Yeah, there, <laughs> yeah, there you go. go. Yeah. Well, it definitely has hey, quality, it's right? It's all about because the quality. Quality. <laughs> exactly. Higher quality. Exactly. Now, you know, actually, Manola, you can uh, maybe explain that as part of the conversation, what this whole thing is about quality. Uh, because you mentioned it earlier about uh, the lady who was uh, came in Persick's office and says, are you teaching quality? But uh, there is something in the book that he is pursuing quality, right? That is uh, one of the things that he is, uh, Robert Persick in the book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, mm -hmm. it's, it's pursuing quality. What is quality? Well, I think for most of us, we consider quality something that we like versus something we like less. So we give it a, a label of quality that resonates with what we prefer. Yes. Quality in the philosophical terms, the way that Robert was striving to explain, was quality means reality. Okay. So that's how it's the big difference mm -hmm. between quality, I like this because I like it, and that because it's, you know, I like it less. So that's the big difference between yes. yeah, quality. He, uh -huh. he, when uh, Robert had developed his philosophy at some length, he said that he read the Tao Te Ching, and he could substitute the word quality for Tao, and it worked perfectly and matched what he was thinking about and trying to describe, but he used the word quality. He mm -hmm. also said when he read Plato, and Plato talks about the good and the one, that it also matched what he was trying to get to. Because you're talking about a, a concept, an ideal, uh, that's transcendental to reason and logic. So the terminology is sort of a, a, a placekeeper for, place for the actual experience yeah. of quality. So yes. given a different terminology, he tried to pick a terminology that would be acceptable and reasonable to the scientific materialistic mind and the milieu that we have grown up in so that we could relate to it and use it as a jumping off point to those uh, levels of consciousness 
that were more transcendental and beyond logic and reason. And he felt that the Greeks had put us on this path of logic and reason that developed beautiful technology, yeah. but it also can be very depersonalizing, dehumanizing, and we can feel lost in this world mm. of technology. And he wanted to say, well, we don't have to do that. Science and technology can also embrace beauty and religion. It doesn't have to be divorced from it. And right. his philosophy was an attempt to integrate those aspects of life into one coherent philosophical expression. And he always felt that if a philosophy had any value, it was valuable to the common man on the street and pragmatic and practical that you could apply it in your everyday life. Otherwise, it was just for scholars or something like that. And he didn't think that that was uh, an expression of quality. Yeah. So when, he ta when you read about the book, you, you, it, pr it changed my perception of technology, actually, okay. as it has had changes in other people. But he was always trying to get to this idea that you could bring this concept of, of Zen understanding into anything that you can do, anything that can, can transform into almost an artistic or meditative kind of a state. Yeah. Since he was also a Zen meditator, he talks about when you quiet your mind and you just open up and just listen to the quiet, that you can touch this sense of quality within you. And the pragmatic uh, application to that is you get stuck in traffic. Instead of getting all upset and angry and emotional or, or you're working on a car or a motorcycle and you run into a problem, instead of getting all frustrated and upset about it emotionally, that you can have this sense of calm and, and you can say, okay, let me think about this. Let me find out how I can get this fixed. And, and you keep your attitude in more of a positive Zen kind of a spirit Mm -hmm. uh, which which brings more quality to your life when you apply this idea that you don't have to get upset with everything and that you can learn to keep harmony. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. Did you want to say something about the Manola? Was that kind of what... Well, when I was doing my research and I could actually say or saw that quality equals reality, I was able to understand it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. It made more sense to me because quality, I gave it that value term as what I see and like and don't like but it changed. It gave it that, the more philosophical meaning, which was good for me personally. Yeah. Uh, touching on Lee's interest in synchronicity, I'll let you know that he took us to Hebgen Lake. Yes. And the year that Robert Persig, in fact, the day that Robert Persig left uh, Minnesota to come to teach here in Bozeman, yeah, that's when that earthquake occurred that collapsed that entire mountain over there. And later, when uh, Robert Persick had his mental breakdown, mm. he compared it to that event in its size and catastrophic effect on his own personal consciousness. That's incredible. The, 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 when his mind was collapsing huh. and he couldn't stop it, he said it was like that event that caused Quake Lake and, and uh, the destruction of the, the mountain. Where I've seen, uh, Lee took us there and we went on the trail and you can see these rocks the size of a house that yeah. have tumbled down that mountain and, and, and traveled for hill. a couple and up the hill. It's just, yeah. it's unbelievable the wow. level of power and destruction that occurred on that date. Wow. So mm -hmm. the idea that that physical experience was a reflection of his emotional and mental breakdown mm -hmm. uh, really had an impact when you go there and you look at it and you think about that. He said, wow, you know. So was that in the late uh, 50s when he actually made that journey to uh, Montana? It was in 59. Right. 59. Right. 59, yeah. 59. Mm -hmm. You know, I, Lee, I, I, you, maybe you can elaborate a little on that story, but I also want to ask you, I've seen a picture of you where you are standing with the actual uh, rep, perfect replica, uh, replica of the Honda motorcycle that uh, Robert Persick drove. 
How was that to sit on a motorcycle that size and make that journey? Yeah, well, that was that was one of the things I I wanted to clarify just a little bit. I, I didn't actually take the entire journey on that motorcycle. Okay, um, it would have been an interesting experience. Uncomfortable, um, a little uncomfortable. Uh, uh, yeah, so Manola, <laughs> yeah, so so Manola has, has ridden on it, so she knows it, it. It was a real feat of endurance for yes. for the person. There's no question yeah, that's yeah. not the most comfortable cycle to ride uh, yeah. long distance. Um, but um, but there's actually quite a story behind that cycle that might might be worth sharing with with, with your audience because it, it, it's it's kind of fascinating how that came to be. Um, it is actually the same year. Uh, the one cycle I have is a 1964 um, Honda CB77 Superhawk, uh, and so for all intents and purposes, it's the identical motorcycle manufactured the same year as Robert Persig's. Ah. Um, well, so what happened? And, and I had it the way I just took it on the journey is I ended. I trailered it. I had it on a trailer and just pulled it across the road, and then occasionally I'd stop and take it off and and go riding places or like put my mount my camera on it and shoot some video like going up Beartooth Highway yeah. and, and various other places. So yeah. so that just want to clarify that's how right. the cycle was incorporated into into my journey. Okay. But uh-huh. that said, it was a magnet. <laughs> I met many people along the way uh, entirely because I had that motorcycle with me um, who would come up and say Oh, I had one of those, or my father had one of those, and I just and, and asked questions, and you find out they're big fans of the book because mm. they of the cycle and, and and just kind of random uh, meetings that would occur, uh, and just meeting fascinating people just by having that. Huh. But but how it came to pass was its own kind of fascinating story. So it was uh, so I left uh, Boise in it was um, July of two thousand eight to go retrace the route and. Um, it was in June. I had an idea about. I was just going to drive. That was the idea, original idea. I was just going to drive the route. And then in June, I, I thought, well, you know, it'd be, it'd be a lot more fun and interesting if I had a motorcycle. But I had too much gear to to take it all on a motorcycle. I knew that. So I thought, well, I'll just haul one with me. And 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 I thought, well, I didn't have one at the time. Yeah. I'd ridden one, but I sold it many many years before. Yeah. And uh, and so I thought, I'll just get a motorcycle and have it with me. And then I thought, well, well, wouldn't it be better to have one like Robert Persig had when I go do this thing? And uh, and so I thought, well, what are the chances? This is June. I'm leaving in six, six weeks or less. Uh, what are the chances of finding a, a Superhawk, a Honda from the 60s, you know, six weeks before I'm going on this journey? So I did a Google search, and they were like four for sale in the entire United States. So uh, Three of them were in places that there's no way I could get to yeah but there was one <laughs> it was a perfect one it was a 1964 yeah and it was for sale in milwaukee wisconsin yeah and i'm already planning on visiting milwaukee on my trip that's so. part of my trip plans was to go there yeah and it was the perfect one because it was the right year it was it was a close enough color and it was in pristine condition and it ran wow. and uh, so i i immediately contacted the gentleman cut a deal um, actually talked him down a little bit, made a, I thought, what a, a fair offer. He accepted it. I overnighted a $500 deposit check, and then I took my trailer when I left in July and picked it up in Milwaukee. And when I picked it up, beautiful machine, this is great, and I had it at the Chautauqua in 2012 in Bozeman, so it was part of, you know, part of history now, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I was, um, 
I was talking to the gentleman, and he 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 uh, and his father. Uh, he ran a had a uh, Oriental rug store in in the outskirts of Milwaukee, and um, and we were visiting, and he said, "Well, Lee, I got to tell you the story of, <laughs> of this motorcycle. It actually was owned by his father for many many years, and it sat in a garage, and he had recently restored it and decided to sell it because yeah. he wanted to do something else. Mm-hmm. He had a collection of motorcycles. So, Lee, but, yeah, Lee, hey, doesn't um." Ali um, Noren have the motorcycle that belongs to that that used to belong to. He, he did. Ali um, Foran. Uh-huh. He lives Does near, he still have uh, it? He lives uh, east of uh, the Twin Cities. Uh-huh. Who's that? Ali North. Yes, John. Ali Ali Foran. Ali Foran. He's an architect, musician. He lives in Wisconsin. He lives in Wisconsin. He did. I have footage of that, but. But yeah, so so the gentleman who sold me the cycle, he 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 told me that he had had the cycle on, on the internet for, on Craigslist for sale for months. No one contacted him until I did, and so he was motivated to sell it. And it was like the next day after um, he received the uh, the deposit from me, he received he someone contacted him with a full price offer. Oh boy. <laughs> And uh, but he he honored my 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 offer and uh, the rest is history. I, I yeah. picked it up and it, and it yeah. changed everything and, it, and it's, it's it's a wonderful little motorcycle and it's historic and I was able to share it at the um, to Chakwa and um, uh, yeah it, it was it was it was a great story and uh, in how it turned out that way. So I want to change a little bit in this last few minutes and ask Manola a question. Hmm. Manola, we're going to do this project Persig's journey. Hmm. I wonder if you might mention what would be the ideal way to get this accomplished. Who would sing the songs? Who would be our actor? Who would be our narrator? What would be the ideal for this project, in your opinion? Why, Dennis, thank you so much for asking me that question. I actually have a vision, which I've had for, Deep. for some time. So I'm glad I have the opportunity. In a perfect world, um, yes, I, we have some people we have in mind to participate with the project. Hmm. For example, Robert, when he was in negotiations with Robert Redford, who wanted to buy the rights to the book to make a film, oh. and ultimately, you know, was it didn't happen. But I read in an interview that he said that he wanted Peter Coyote to play the narrator in that film if it got made. So to fulfill Robert's wish, it would be amazing if we could get a hold of Peter Coyote to be the narrator for Who this is he film. Again? I oh, he, he does a lot of Ken Burns narration. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. he's he's okay. like he's an actor, playwright, screenwriter. Yeah. He's got an excellent voice. He's yeah. got also he does all sorts of things. But inter- interestingly also, he was a roommate with Chris when they were both in the uh, San Francisco Zen Center in the late seventies. So that's one request that we have. And then since it's going to be a, a travel show, uh, travel movie going across the the Midwest, it'd be great to have some wonderful motorcycle type travel music. And then we were thinking about Jeff Bridges with his band, and he co-wrote a book called "The Dude and the Zen Master," and he's got a country <laughs> western band, so it'd be amazing for him to come on board. Yeah, yeah. And then Arlie Guthrie because. Robert Persick said that when he was going through his hard time, he would listen to Lonesome Dove, who his dad wrote that song, and it would be really fabulous. Bridge. L- Lonesome Lo- Bridge. Uh, right. and Lonesome, okay. Lonesome Valley. Lonesome Valley. Yeah, Lonesome Valley. And so 
for sure we're going to include that song and it'd be amazing if Arlie Guthrie could sing it. Anyways, that's pretty much the wish that we have. Would there be actors that actually will play um, uh, Robert and his son Chris? Yes, yes. Some of the scenes are going to be dramatized. And then one person that Tina actually said, hey, you know, I have an idea about um, a friend of mine to play Robert Persick, and we said, "Yeah, who is it?" She goes, "Well, Bill Pullman. We, you know, he's Bill like Pullman. A, yeah, yeah, he kind of looks was, like him too. He totally yeah. looks like Robert, and, and and he went to MSU acting. Yeah, oh, he went. That's he, right. Yeah, he went to MSU. So, you know, maybe he'd come on board and and play the role of Robert Persick. So that's yeah. that's our like dream dream wish. Wow, wow, very nice. Look at that. We're almost at the end here. Perfect. Thanks, Lee. Hey, Lee, Thank I really you. appreciate it. Thank you so much for your. Hey, my insight. pleasure. Yeah. You guys have a good day. You too. Yeah, I thank you so much. And uh, I wish you all the best with all your projects that you're working on. And uh, it seems like this whole book has been one big inspiration for you. And um, I hope it may continue to do that for you. Well, thank you. Appreciate all right. that. All the best, Lee. Okay. Bye-bye. Talk, okay. talk later. Bye. Bye. Dennis and Manola, thank you so much for all your work you're doing. And all the best to both of you. Thank you. Thank you, Jacobus. Right. Jacobus, it was Fabulous. Really appreciate it. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. Go to PersicsJourney.com. We'll be back next week. See you then.